From coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back. I'm Lucas Burrows. And I'm Sydney Carbonic. And we will be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. This week, we have another piece from the Conference on Cities and Climate Change that was held in Edmonton this past March by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. In this documentary, University of Alberta student David Draper addresses his own questions about the future of urban development. Is it better to improve our current infrastructure to address these issues, or should we move and start anew somewhere else? But first, here's some environmental news headlines. Big cities in southern Ontario have the next seven years to create a program to collect and manage household food and organic wastes. Shopping centres, apartment complexes, public institutions and municipalities such as Windsor and London will be included in the project. Several municipalities and businesses that found it difficult or expensive to compost in the past have voiced their excitement for a curbside composting collection program. Canada's federal government has stated that it will provide the province of Alberta with extra funds to assist in the protection of threatened caribou herds. Shannon Phillips, Alberta's environment minister, requested more time and money from the federal government to help the province deal with the federal demands. However, some Alberta scientists believe that economic assistance and more time for research will not help the threatened caribou herds as it could take 20 years or more to fully restore the caribou's habitat. University of Alberta student David Draper attended the IPCC conference on cities and climate change and brought along a curiosity about urban development and how we utilize our cities. David interviewed a few experts while attending the IPCC conference about topics like the utilization of green space as well as the accessibility and inclusivity of cities. Here's David's piece. You know, if you have a really good idea, the Chinese government will say to you, well, here's a city, do it. Oh, do you want a different city? I think we're we're essentially sort of tinkering in the sense that we're dealing with the symptoms, but we're never getting to to the root of it. I'm David Draper, and I'll be talking to you about living outside the box. One thing I've always been curious about is why, as a society, we view cities the way we do. You know, a lot of us, we only see that small corridor that we drive through from home to work to school to maybe the occasional off-the-road path to try out a new restaurant that just opened up. But we have so much more in the city. I was tired sitting around being curious and I decided to finally go out and ask the experts about the way we view cities. So I asked them questions about transit, green space, urban development, urban design, and if there might even be a point in the future where it's better for the environment and the economy to just get up and build new cities. I decided to start this journey towards urban development enlightenment by learning more about my own city, Edmonton, Alberta. This came in handy because two of the people I talked to today are actually quite influential people in Edmonton. One of the cool things I learned was about green space. And not a lot of people know this, but Edmonton actually has one of the longest continuous green spaces in North America with a river valley. But oftentimes, these green spaces just go unused by the general public or 
the people that actually try to use them, the people that need them the most, are kicked out. I had the opportunity to talk with Julian Daly, the executive director of Boyle Street Community League in downtown Edmonton, and amid the, uh, the hustle and the bustle of his clientele outside the front door, he had quite a lot to say about how the city uses green space and how the city treats those who try to use green space. To me, it, I don't think it's about creating new spaces. We've got plenty of public spaces in Edmonton. We've got lots of parks, we've got lots of uh, squares, we've got all of that. It's, it's really more how we use our public spaces and how people are treated in them. I think that's the thing that can change. I don't think we need more space. We just need the spaces that already exist to be more welcoming and more conducive to all citizens spending time in them as well. Because it's almost like our, our public spaces are such that people are kind of encouraged to kind of move through them as quickly as possible. We don't encourage citizens to, to linger in a sense. We don't provide much in those spaces often to, to keep people there. Uh, and in, in the case of the folk that we serve, they're, they're actually often, you know, uh, aggressively moved on from public space. They're trying to sitting on a bench, spending time, they're moved on, sometimes even ticketed for sleeping on it. Whereas I bet you my next month's salary, I could go and sit in any park or any public space in the city for any length of time and I would not be moved on. I could probably even fall asleep on a bench or on the ground and I don't think anyone would ticket me uh, for doing that. Um, I'd be very, very surprised if that happened. I could probably sit in city centre mall for as long as I wanted in any of the food courts or anywhere and I, I suspect no one would move me on. Uh, but those are all experiences that so many of the people uh, that we see uh, experience. And, you know, this, I'm, you've probably been more than aware of the, the wading pool, the swimming pool wading pool outside City Hall and all the, that story. And to me, that's a really fascinating story about public space. Um, because that space, I don't know if you ever go by it, but uh, I go by it quite a lot in the summer especially. And um, it's a space that's used primarily by low-income families, low-income folk, and indigenous folk. I think it's one of the few public spaces in our city where there's a sense that indigenous people particularly have a sense of ownership. And, you know, I've talked to people who, uh, uh, who you know, have brought their kids there to swim because they can't afford as a family the, how much it costs even to get into the, you know, reasonably priced public swimming pools, but they're still too expensive for a family, a low-income family, so they bring their kids there. to so one place they can kind of take the kids to the pool and have a nice family day out uh, in our city. And yet, we have chosen to take that space away. So a place that was really vibrant, really alive in our city, and, and a space that was very indigenous too, uh, and a sense of indigenous ownership, which is quite rare in the city, we're taking it away. And you've got to wonder why. And uh, I think that's a great, that will be a great loss, actually, for some folk who it brought a great deal of pleasure to. And was, in fact, I think, our, arguably our most vibrant public space. And we've, we've essentially made decisions that will, will, will destroy it as such. Although we might need to start rethinking how we treat the people attempting to use our green space in Edmonton, we have actually done quite a lot to increase its accessibility. Just recently, we opened up the downtown funicular to allow people with mobility issues an entryway into the Edmonton River Valley. And that's just one piece of the various transit-oriented development projects that are going on in Edmonton. There's the recent opening of the Nate Line, 
and now the westward expansion of the Valley LRT line. At the recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change conference hosted in Edmonton, I had the opportunity to talk with the mayor of Edmonton, Don Iveson. There I asked him about a lot of the transit-oriented development strategies going on in Edmonton, and what a city designed foremost with transit in mind might look like. Public transit plays two important roles. One, it, uh, it for people who don't have a choice today, it's an essential lifeline to get uh, people to and from services and jobs and school, and it will always have that function. But for it to have a transformative impact on our emissions profile and also the quality of life and affordability of our city, we need to build the kind of system that more people will choose over their private automobile. And the way to do that is to provide higher quality, more direct service. Uh, that gets people from A to B um, quickly uh, and efficiently, uh, and that uh, also does so reliably. And so uh, rapid transit in the f on rails is kind of the, the gold standard on that, but we're also overhauling our bus network. We're installing a smart card system to make it easier to interface with the system. We have to take an end-to-end -end approach to making transit um, more inviting for Edmontonians. And if we also put the major stops, particularly on the light rail system, uh, in locations where there's opportunities over time to build uh, mini downtowns, town centers or transit-oriented development. Density and jobs uh, located within walking distance of that LRT station, that's going to allow um, uh, hundreds of thousands of families over a long period of time to make a different and less car-dependent choice, to spend less money on private transportation, to create fewer emissions associated with that, and benefit from the healthy, more affordable, more walkable lifestyle and the vibrancy on the street and the coffee shops and all of that, all of that, uh, um, that lifestyle that comes with urban living, which just so happens uh, reduces our greenhouse gas emissions. So it all lines up. I'm David Draper, and today we've been talking about living outside the box. So far, I've talked a bit about green spaces and showed a brief clip of an interview I had with Don Iveson, the mayor of Edmonton at the IPCC conference in Edmonton this past March. Don Iveson wasn't the only person I got to talk to at the IPCC conference. However, right now I want to focus on somebody who I almost got to talk to. I was running throughout the halls, chasing after a man named Felix Krotzig. I had just heard him talk in a panel about enabling resilience building for cities dealing with climate change. Felix, along with a uh, PhD student in mathematics of all degrees, mathematics, had wrote a paper about the mathematically best cities when it comes to balancing the urban heat island effect and general GHG emissions. This city, unlike what we currently have now with large sprawling dots littering across our entire uh, continent, is a star-shaped city. Star-shaped. You have one small, very dense urban point in the middle, and these corridors coming across out from it. These corridors are densely populated with a thick, strong corridor of 
public transit in the middle. And now between these corridors is green space. So you have all of the wonders of dense urban life coupled with green space everywhere as well as a strong urban transportation network. These are things that people all the time cry out for in cities. More transportation. Having connection to the downtown core while not losing green spaces. And it turns out these are the very things that putting together in our cities actually makes them the best climate efficient cities. Felix's talk developed an itch in my mind. It gave me the question of, is there ever going to be a point where it's better for the environment and even more cost effective for everybody in a city to just get up, leave, and build a new one? We have aging infrastructure, we have new ideas of urban planning, and changing science on how to design our cities. It just got me thinking, will there ever be a point where it makes more sense to just get up and leave? So I decided, instead of just sitting around and trying to figure it out based on the limited facts that I know, to actually ask somebody who is an expert on this kind of thing. So I found David Miller, who is the North American Regional Director of C40 Cities, a climate leadership group that connects municipalities all across the world, and the former mayor of Toronto, and asked him if he thought there's ever a specific moment, or if there's ever a a point in time where it would be more effective to just get up and leave? I would say no, and I'd also say yes. Depends where you are. Um, I think my view, my personal view, and this is based on the writings of Jane Jacobs and my own experience, is cities that evolve, it, it work better. It's better economically, um, and uh, that change can be steered by people because ultimately this is the people's city. It's not the mayor's city. The mayor's there in the will of the people, and, and because you're the mayor, you, you get briefed on certain things that uh, most people don't have the opportunity to get briefed on, you know, the impact of climate, the cost of rapid transit, the extreme cost of sprawl in car-based cities. But I, I, for me, the best cities evolve in the North American context. So that's why I said no. The answer yes is in places like China. It's unbelievable what they're doing in China. Um, you know, if you have a really good idea, the Chinese government will say to you, well, here's a city, do it. Oh, do you want a different city? Like, it's really, it's just hard for us to imagine. They, they have entire cities in China, like Shenzhen, that are going all electric, all of their transportation, because they've been allowed to experiment that way. And so in a place like China, you can start more from the ground up. And then you can imagine a city, you know, using the, the best of modern technology, but the same kinds of principles. You want it to be walkable, you want it to be dense, you want it to be economically successful, you want it to be based around clean energy. But you can imagine a city using the best of modern technology to create that from the ground up. But I think in the North American context, uh, we're better off trying to find ways to evolve.
and that's when you're going to have a really interesting, exciting city if it evolves around those principles of, of creating a place that people really want to live, uh, that is good to live, that's green, that's environmentally friendly, that's based on public transport, and is increasingly dense at the core, because that's when it's vibrant and alive. My curiosity was only spurred on by my talk with David Miller. So I decided to go press the question of if it's ever better to leave our cities with Don Iveson, the mayor of Edmonton, and Julian Daly, the executive director of the Boyle Street Community League. My conversation with Julian Daly was, was interesting. He brought up the point that we could always get up and leave, but until we actually make a culture of our people, of our society, rather than just our cities, that are willing to deal with this type of problem, that are willing to deal with our social structures, then we can't really escape our problems. He told me the story of a, a documentary series he watched on Netflix, and it was of a, of a hippie commune that just fled in, I think it was Southern California, they just fled their cities. And it was a utopia for about 15 years. And then all of the problems that they had tried to escape from society just came running back to them. And that kind of goes hand in hand with what Don Iveson was saying. He was saying that we have so much culture in Edmonton and we have about $50 billion of infrastructure in the city that we can't just get up and leave. It just, there's so much that we'll be leaving behind. So what we should focus on is modernizing our existing infrastructure and dealing with the space we have more efficiently. The example he used was the redesign of the old downtown Edmonton airport. We're building a carbon neutral housing, shopping, living district in downtown Edmonton that looks like something out of a sci-fi movie. I saw the uh, the development plans and it's just crazy. They have a heating system that uses the excess heat from commercial venues and recycles it into domestic ones. In the summer, all the heat that's radiating, out of build radiating off of buildings, they actually store it in the lake bed and then they can take it out for later use in the summer, in the winter so that they can remain as low energy as possible. It's amazing this kind of stuff that we're having going on in our city and we're still allowed and we're still able to keep our major landmarks, keep our culture, keep what we actually have as an identity. When it comes to urban development and urban planning and how we th think of our cities, all we can do is just think of them more and push ourselves to think of them in new ways. Think of the new ways we can use stuff. Think of how we currently use them and how we treat other people using our cities. So next time you're on your morning commute to work or you're just finishing up classes, maybe take a walk. Look into one of the longest urban continuous green spaces in North America. Say hi to maybe one of the people that are trying to live their life in one of these green spaces and hear their stories.
And think of the ways that you interact with your city. Because the city itself and the way people deal with it is constantly changing. And it's time that we change with it. I'm David Draper. Special thanks to Chris Chenyan Phillips, Dr. Ken Kane, Rezvana Urfani, David Miller, Julian Daly, Don Iveson, and the city's IPCC conference. We've got the creator of the piece uh, in studio with us right now. Hey, I'm uh, David Draper. So, Ken Edmonton, a city whose identity is built around oil with a very pro-oil culture, evolve into a city uh, to quote Don Iveson, is there a way to make less car-dependent choices? Do you, do you see Edmonton being able to do that somewhere in the near future? Is that a long-term plan? I, I definitely think so. With uh, You can kind of see that with Blatchford. There's a lot of new development and new development planning happening about transit and, uh, and bikes especially. And we're actually working to have the River Valley more accessible so that we can actually have alternative forums to go places, even through green spaces through the entire city. And you can also see the uh, transit expansion. Now, we are still going to be, to at least some extent, an oil-reliant city because just the way that our energy grid functions. But you can also see with the provincial government, there are like phasing out coal and trying to move to somewhat more renewable stuff. So it is just a gradual process that involves a lot of uh, cooperation between levels of government. But Edmonton is taking a lot of steps to actually start um, moving towards it. Right. To play the devil's advocate, kind of, um, as a cyclist, I find a lot of backlash to the uh, bike lanes already, even though they've just been around for a year. Um, do you think that'll, I guess over time it'll gradually decrease, but what do you think is a way we can make people more open to bike lanes? Well, I, I've definitely seen a lot of that backlash. Uh, like the me- recent municipal election, there was that was a major hot-button issue. But I think the main reason for a lot of that backlash is because we had designed this city beforehand without any of this in mind. And going back to the um, the Blatchford Development Project, they're designing it with bike lanes first and then having the actual transit. And when it's actually built with that from the get-go, people aren't going to be worried about having all the, um, the roads change to fit bikes because they're going to be there from the start. So I think after like a little while, after a few years, it's going to get naturalized and people are just going to get used to the fact that there are bike lanes now. But until then, it's some people are just going to be slightly inconvenienced and get really vocal about it. What do you think, Sydney? Um, I don't know. You you uh, drive a car, right? Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you feel about cyclists? Let's preface this with the only reason why I drive a car is because I live in St. Albert. Of course, of course. I'm not. I'm not so ragging. I know. I know. I know. I know. I just. I love bikers and I love biking. And my dad is one of those naysayers that was that hates the bike lanes mm-hmm. <laughs> like he like despises them and he he just thinks that it creates um uh, more pollution with the idling um of cars that have to wait for bikes um but i think kind of touching on what you said i think it's just culture and how we grew up and how our cities are built well urban development and urban planning was from the get-go what i was really interested in and I just kind of started off with the question of, like, why are cities built the way they are? And if there will ever be a point when it's just more efficient to get up and leave and build new cities with all of the new changed ideas. And that's kind of where it started off. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of branched out more into 
like green space and transportation from there. Yeah. Yeah. So if your piece could change something about our cities, what would it be? What would you choose? I I am a major advocate for long-term planning when it comes to that. Like a lot of development just kind of happens because oh hey, we need some new houses there. And it's a lot of actually um commercially led development especially in like suburbs suburbs and having an actual long-term development plan and actually figuring out where things are going to be in planning for the future that's insanely important to have an actually well-designed and functioning environmentally friendly city mm-hmm. and that involves some like infill development in the city because urban sprawl is a consequence of badly planned cities and we can see that it's Edmonton is growing a lot faster than it needs to be. By growing, do you mean outwards? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because if we grow up, that's better for almost everybody involved because you get a more densely packed downtown core, and then the currently existing services in the downtown core become even more efficient because a lot more people are using them. But if you grow out, then you need to create more new services that have to go even farther for less people. So that's what Don Iveson was saying in when you interviewed him. I think that's a very good point. You articulated it very well there. Yeah. And that long-term kind of minded thinking for development, I think is super important right now with climate change. Oh, yeah. You have to think long-term now. You're, well, you're just forced to. What What I really get bothered with is a lot of the time, people think in four-year cycles mm-hmm. because that's how long they have the job for, right? Yeah, politics. Oh, yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's kind of the stumbling block because yeah. if you don't have positive results to show within the next three to four years, then you're not going to be able to go in and keep the project going. And a lot of these projects, like, they have some short-term downsides. They have, like, some consequences. And the long-term benefits aren't always immediately visible. Mm-hmm. And that's what turns a lot of people off, I Exa- think, is because you don't see the change right away immediately. Exactly. I think with these bike lanes going in, more people will choose to cycle, and that'll put less cars on the road yeah. and therefore limit the amount of idling and even with the bike lanes that separates the bikes from the cars meaning they don't have to wait behind cyclists so Mm -hmm. yeah and then maybe they would build bike lanes from st albert to edmonton so i could bike because i totally would that's when you get into like two different municipalities trying to talk with with each other that's that's just another thing (laughs) in of itself whole other story oh yeah (laughs) so after doing this piece are there any new ways or one particular thing that stands out um, when you look at your city. And to add on to that, are there any lifestyle choices that you're changing now to align with your views? I'd say new ways to look at my city, definitely with um, with how I interact with green space. I've I've been making a conscious effort to like spend more time in like the River Valley, spend more time in parks, and like see and consciously look around to see who is in that space with me and just take note of the types of people who are using it and the types of people who are using it but look like they are getting somewhat like dirty side looks, stuff like that, and how we actually interact with some people who we view as deserving for actual use of a green space. Lifestyle choices wise, I've been I've been picking up the bike a lot more than I did last uh, last time. Like it was I've I've been biking practically everywhere, and if I'm not biking, then I'm taking transit because it's just it's the better choice for urban development. It's inconvenient sometimes, but it's the better choice that needs to be made sometimes. 
and I'm actually planning on moving downtown within the next uh, next few months, and then I'll just I'll I'll be able to like completely bike everywhere, and that's going to be phenomenal. I'm so jealous. <laughs> it's good you're getting your story out there, and yeah. hopefully it inspires more people. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it's pretty quiet. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. If you want to hear even more stories like that, please check out our website at terraforma.ca. And while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. Yeah. We would love to get to know you, our listeners, and what you enjoy about the show. Your input can influence the content we gather over the next year. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Terraforma is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton on Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terraforma. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, David Draper, Amanda Rooney, Hannah Cunningham, and Shelley Jadwain. I've been your host, Lucas Burrows. And I'm Sydney Carbonic. Catch you next week.